Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the Word of God and for the empowering anointing of the Spirit of God. And we pray that you would take this scripture and make application to our hearts as we consider um, who we are to be before you. So come, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to be reading a very familiar passage of scripture in John chapter 1 on this uh, Sunday before Christmas. Hear the word of God in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then 14 through 16. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and of truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a well-known passage. If you'd been sitting in the first century church and you were from a Greek or Roman background and the reader stood up and read the first beginning of this passage, you'd have said, of course. Because the reader would have read, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. And you'd have said, sure. Yeah, we, all, we live in a world full of, you would think, as a Greco-Roman philosophical mindset person, we live in a culture that's full of semi-gods, half-gods, almost gods, God, all types of things. So, so it's, it's, sure, no, no big deal. In fact, if you were in that mindset, that worldview, you would have been part of something called Gnosticism, latent Gnosticism, proto-Gnosticism. You believe there was a great undefinable movement, mind, called God, who could not be defined, and there were emanations from this pure being, and each emanation became less and less pure until the final emanation made the heavens and the earth. Therefore, the heavens and the earth were putrid. The Hebrew mind said, in the beginning, God spoke the world into being that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But the Greco-Roman world says, no, it's just a, at best, it's just a fuzzy shadow. So, so you're sitting there, of course. And then the next phrase was written, and you fell off of your bench. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You go, whoa, 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 whoa. God? Then you go, who's this Word? Down to verse 14. There's some suspense here. Verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. And you go, wow. I want us to hear that message. The Word became flesh. Verse 3 says, He's the great Creator God. He spoke the world into being. It just absolutely blows apart your worldview. And in fact, there's an early Greek thinker who predated Plato by about 60 years. His name was... Anaxagoras, Anaxagoras was a philosopher, and he said this, we believe that behind the entire cosmos is a divine, undefinable mind, M-I-N-D. 
This mind is unlimited and self-ruled and mixed with no thing. It is alone and by itself. It's the finest and purest of all things. Seven years later, Plato, who died in 348 B.C., says, says, we believe in a mind or minds. It's the glorious cause of everything. All things are ordered by a mind, an undefinable mind. And then, of course, Plato came up with this theory of forms that said that, that there is a, a perfect representation of everything in heaven and everything else on earth is a fuzzy manifestation of the perfect ideal. We see through shadows. We, we see fuzziness. The ideals are in heaven. But this mind is undefinable, and it's over and above and beyond us. And the Bible says here, though, the Word became flesh. The Word was God. He is eternal God. Now, in the early church, a couple of centuries later, there was a huge struggle. There was a group of people called the Arians, followed a guy named Arius. And Arius had a famous saying. He departed from Scripture, and he says, there was a time when he was not, that Jesus is a created being. The early church came together at a place called Nicaea in 325. There were over 215 representatives, and all but two of them signed a document that we have called the Nicene Creed that says Jesus is very God of very God. He is eternally God. See, Arius, bear with me here. This is very important. Arius says that Jesus was, was of the similar substance with the Father. He was a lot like the Father, but was not exactly like the Father. That's Arius. Athanasius, you see his picture here, show his picture. Athanasius, that's the artist, obviously. I hope he was better looking than that. But anyway, by the way, he's one of my heroes. Athanasius was just a stud. And if you're going to have a baby this year and it's going to be a boy, I would lobby for that name. <laughs> we can sh shorten it to Nathan or Nate or maybe Athan or Isseus or something like that. But it's a great, it's a great man. So Athanasius was, was a bishop. And Athanasius says, said with the rest of the church throughout the ages, no, he was of the same substance with the Father. In fact, Athanasius came up with, with really a fight song. They would sing this in the streets. It's true. We call it the Gloria Patra. They'd sing in the streets as they worked and as they were true Orthodox Christians. They'd say, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost as it was, what? In the beginning, Tis now and ever shall be, world without end, amen. And now and ever shall be. In other words, there's never a time when he was not, as it was in the beginning. It refers to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they would sing these songs. And they would glory in the greatness of Christ. And Athanasius was bishop for 45 years. He died at age 75. In 45 of his years as bishop, 17 years, he was in exile because they were hunting him down to arrest him and put him to death because he just preached the gospel. He was an amazing man. Uh, study his life and you go, wow. And you'll name your son or grandson Athanasius, I promise. So, so, so behold the glory of Christ. Here, here's, so so why, why did the secular leaders of the day of Athanasius, you see he died in seven, uh, three, 373, why did the secular leaders really like Arianism? And kind of like that, many of them is compared to biblical truth. Here's my answer. If you believe that Jesus is a created being, that he's of similar substance with the Father, 
and that he is an enlightened guru, a great rabbi, but he's not God in the flesh, then what Jesus says does not have binding authority. He's just one of many enlightened people. So everybody that came after him also was enlightened. You may have the great Baba Louie, or you may, have, you may have Muhammad, you may have all these other teachers, and you've got to listen to them. And, and so th 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 there's no ultimate truth. It's just ongoing. But, but if you believe that he is of the same substance with the Father, that he's the full revelation of God, then he has binding authority in your life. The early church believed that Jesus was God. Let me give you some examples of, of what they said, just a few in Acts. For example, in Acts chapter 4, uh, Peter stands up, who's an untrained fisherman, and he's just preaching the gospel. And it says this in Acts 4, uh, let it be known, verse 10, to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but who God raised out of the dead, by him, this man who was once diseased or lame is now standing before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given among men under heaven by which you must be saved. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. You see, because Jesus is the final revelation of God, the apostles said there's no other name given among heaven, among men, by which we can be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. See, you cannot control men and women whose hearts have been captivated by the gospel of Christ because their ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. And so they called the apostles in. They threatened them with death. They throw them into prison in chapter 5. And in the middle of the night, the prison doors fly open. The apostles go out. The prison doors go shut. It's locked once again. And the guards come back in the morning to bring them out before the ruling council. And lo and behold, the guys are gone. They're not there. And it says in chapter 5, verse 24, they were greatly perplexed by this. Well, I bet they were. They were greatly perplexed. And they said, where are these guys? And they said, they're in the town square preaching about this man named Jesus. And so they arrest them. They bring them back. They're standing before the council. And they said, listen, you guys can't speak in his name. You can't preach in his name. You're turning Jerusalem upside down. This is what the Bible says. We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you are. You fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. You see, when men get an understanding that Jesus is their ultimate authority, they cannot be controlled by ethnicity or by the state or by nationalism or by family heritage because they have a higher and deeper allegiance. Two chapters later, the first martyr, Stephen, gives a historical overview of the Old Testament. He talks about, the right, about Jesus Christ being the righteous one. He says, you've persecuted all the prophets. And then he said this. He said, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And they stoned him to death. And if Stephen had said, you know, you guys have persecuted people, and now this great teacher, you've also, you've also persecuted him, no big deal. But he called Jesus the righteous one. He's Messiah. He's king. And they stoned him. Because, church, you cannot control men and women who have an authority that's higher than the state or ethnicity or family heritage. 
If you study the 20th century, the Soviets and the Nazis, when they came to power, what did they do? They tried to stamp out the church because they want to control people. The Nazis even outlawed Christmas. Did you know that? Study the history. They said, take out your Christmas trees, take out the star at the top and put on a swastika. Don't make Christmas cookies, make winter solstice cookies. Don't sing your hymns. Sing nationalistic songs about the Third Reich. They came to the churches and they removed the cross and put up swastikas or a swastika in the middle of the cross. But the true believer said, no. He said, no. Because we have, we have a, a standard. We have an allegiance that's higher than nationalism. And his name is Jesus. See, it's very important. Is he the full revelation of God, the ultimate revelation of God? I went to the citadel. I love the citadel. The citadel was a great, great place for me, and I learned a lot, and I came to know the Lord there. Um, I, I love the citadel. And there are many people here who are going there or who went there, and good for you. We have an alma mater. If you went to college, you have an alma mater. Many alma maters are kind of silly, just to be honest. Uh, ours is pretty good. It was written in 1943. It was written during the height of World War II when many of our graduates and students were fighting totalitarianism in Europe and Asia. And it's good. It's good. I'm just, I'm going to quote it to you instead of singing it to you. Oh, so we sing, okay. It goes like this. O Citadel, we sing thy fame for all the world to hear. And in the past, our fathers showed us follow without fear. Peace and honor, God and country, we will fight for thee. O citadel, we praise thee now and in eternity. Uh, that's good. I, I, it's fine until the last little part. O citadel, we praise thee now and in eternity. Now, I love the citadel. When I go to heaven, I'm not going to be singing about the citadel. You know? I'm going to be singing about Jesus. You know? I love the citadel. I'm not going to be saying, hey, man, go bulldogs. I'm going to say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, people have an allegiance that's higher than nationalism, higher than ethnicity, higher than family heritage, higher than geographic zip code, higher can't be controlled because they have an authority that flows from here. That's why this is incredibly important on one level. So let me make two statements, then two applications or two observations, and we'll go. So you, you, you come to this text, and it's, it's one of the chief text of the Christian faith, and, and, and you step up and you say, okay, I want you to, in pure rational terms, explain to me, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Explain that to me, I can't. It's beyond me, it's beyond anybody in this room to fully explain the glorious nature of the Trinitarian God who has no beginning and who has no end. And that's okay with me. In fact, there's a little statement in your sermon guide from a guy named John Piper. And Piper says this. He says that the Bible will not let, us, let its message be fit into the categories we bring with our fallen and very finite minds. It presses us relentlessly to create new categories of thought to contain the deep mysteries of the gospel. It's interesting to me that last week I was in 1 Timothy 3, and Paul says with great joy, he says, great is the mystery of godliness. The mystery is that which has been fully uncovered, that we can see that it was once 
partially covered and non-disclosed until the coming of Jesus. And so when he says, great is the mystery of godliness, he runs to this hymn that he either is writing or the church saying that goes like this. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by the angels. He was preached among the nations. He was believed on in the world, and he was risen in glory. He just celebrates the glory of Christ, God in the flesh. And then in Romans chapter 9 through 11, Paul is trying to hammer out the great doctrine of God's eternal work in his church called the doctrine of election, where God secretly works in the heart of men and women as the gospel's preached. And he brings issue after issue to the table in this incredible statement. And then he gets to the end of the discussion, verse chapter 11, he says this, verse 33, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or, or who has given to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and all men. He says, I can't fully explain this doctrine of how God builds his church and the gates of hell don't prevail and God opens the eyes of people and gives them sight. I can't explain that, but just behold the mercy of God. And you say, Amen. So we come to this and we just say, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see hell, the incarnate deity. So we fall down and we worship the one who said to the people around him in his day before Abraham in the Old Testament was, I am, declaring himself to be God. We fall down before the one who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We worship the one who says, I and the Father are one. We, we worship the one who said, I forgive your sins and the people of his day tried to stone him because they said only God can forgive sins. And that's right, only God can because God was speaking. It's amazing. God came, born of a virgin, supernatural life, sinless life, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. Behold your God. We worship him. I was reading the first two chapters of John the other day, and I just, every, every time I read this, I just, I just, I, I just, and moved, and I, I laughed, and I am amazed. John, John 4, you know the story. Jesus goes through Samaria, and he's thirsty. He stops at a well, and his men go on, and he's sitting there. And Samaria is a place where half Jews live. They're intermarried. The Jews don't like the Samaritans. The Samaritans don't like the Jews. And yet Jesus goes through Samaria because he loves people. And he's sitting there, and a woman comes up, and... Uh, he asked her for a drink. And they start this dialogue. And Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. And she says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. She doesn't get it. And Jesus says, well, why don't you call your husband and I'll talk to him. She says, well, I'm not married. He says, I know you're not married. You've been married five times, and the guy you're with is not your husband. And what do you do when somebody says that to you? You change the subject. You know, come on. Okay, okay. So she says, sir, you're a prophet. You're a prophet. <laughs> Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem there's a place where people ought to worship. And then Jesus says, woman, we worship what we know, for salvation is a deed from the Jews, for the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. 
the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He's the one who's called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And she left her water pots. Went to the town said, come, listen to this guy. He claims to be Messiah. And he stayed with him two days. That would have been fun. And we just, we worship this one. We worship this one who is fully revealed, and he's the full revelation of God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Who is this Word? Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. I read a lot of uh, book reviews, New York Times, and when somebody says, this is a great book, get it. Sometimes I'll just call the library and say, put this book on reserve. And there's a book I read about, about four months ago entitled um, Falling Upward, A Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life. I like the guy's thesis. He's a kind of a former Catholic priest, and, and his name is Richard Rohr. And I, I was on a four-month waiting list. I thought, wow, my anticipation was building. Four, this is going to be really good. Four months, I'm going to wait. Four months, it finally came in about three weeks ago. I got it and read it, and I was totally disappointed. And I'll tell you why. I mean, I think the thesis is good. He's, 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 he's done his research. He's good. But basically, he's kind of the point of saying that Jesus is just one name among many names. Yeah. In fact, he says in his book on page 81, he says, so I offer this personal apologia for those who perhaps are wondering why I quote Jesus so much, you might be saying, does it really matter? Or does it have to be in the Bible to be true? Well, he says, and I'll pick up the quote, I, I quote Jesus because I still consider him to be the spiritual authority of the Western world. Whether we follow him or not, he is always spot on at the deeper levels and when we understand him in his own explosive context. One does not even need to believe in his divinity or that he was God to realize that Jesus is seen at a much higher level than most of us. And when you really parse that and tease it out and think through it, what he's saying is that Jesus is, Jesus is a great teacher, but he's, 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 he's a man. And I just read that, and I thought in my mind, I didn't write in the book because it wasn't my book. Nonsense. Nonsense. We follow Jesus, church, not, not because he is a guru, not because he's an enlightened Jedi, not because he's a prelude to Obi-Wan Kenobi. We follow Jesus because he's God. If he's God, the words he speaks and the words of his apostles have binding authority on the church. And then I'm reading a book on James Madison. James Madison was, was really a, a neat guy. He was 5'1", weighed 110 pounds. The best thing he ever did was he married Dolly. And, but he was a brilliant man. And so I'm reading this book on James Madison. I'm always thinking what these guys believe and what they really hold to. Because I know they all believe in the supreme being, kind of, sort of. 
This is what it says, and it's very disappointing. He was, by the way, he was, James Madison was taught and mentored by a guy named John Witherspoon, who was the only clergyman to sign the Declaration of Independence, just in case you want to know. And in case you really want to know, he's the great, 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 great grandfather of Reese Witherspoon. Isn't that cool? Okay, so this is, that's John Witherspoon. He was mentored by John Witherspoon, a godly Scottish clergyman. And I thought, James, man, come on. And then I read this. In his biography, he says, did he have faith? He says, we don't know. The most he ever said about faith was in a wintry letter at the end of his life. And he said, quote, the mind prefers the idea of an infinitely good, if invisible, God. And this belief of philosophical reason on the subject must perhaps terminate, close quote. He said, the best we can do philosophically is to say there may be an infinitely good God who's a creator God who cannot be defined. And I just, my heart broke. I thought, oh. The knowledge of God doesn't terminate in a philosophical vacuum. The knowledge of God is fulfilled and it terminates in the person of Jesus. And that's why we glory in this very quickly. Then the passage says two things. It says he's the creator God. Now again, he's the creator God. You're a proto-Gnostic. You're a Greek guy. You're a Roman guy. You believe the creation is kind of a, a happenstance, a mess. And yet the Bible says this, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Colossians 1 says all things were made by him through him and for him. Outside, there was show and tell time with little babies up and down the hallway. And you see these little babies in their fingers and their ears and their nose, and you say, God, the great creator, did this. Life is a beautiful creation. The earth is full of the glory of God. All things are made by Jesus, for Jesus, and through Jesus because he's the eternal God. And we rejoice in that. And then, then you, you tease it out, and there's a quote in the bulletin. You can read from your Christianity by a guy named C.S. Lewis. And Lewis says, says, says God is, is, is the petrol or the gasoline that our spirits, our bodies were made to run on. If you want to have a life that's filled with joy and purpose and dignity, you can't discount the reality of Christ because you can't get there. If you want to have God's shalom, God's peace, God's wholeness in your life, you, you come to the one who is eternal God. Jesus says in John chapter, excuse me, Matthew chapter 6, he says that the eye is the lamp of the body, verse 22. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be flooded with light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be flooded with darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how vast is the darkness? Jesus says if, if you look at life correctly and you view it correctly, and you view it through my lens, and you understand you live in a world that's glorious but fallen, and there's the hope of heaven, and there's purpose and dignity, because I am and I have spoken. Your, your body and your life will be flooded with light. But if you don't, if you close your eyes to that, if you discount that, then you're going to walk in darkness. And if the light within you is darkness, he says, the darkness is vast. And so he's the great creator God who made the heavens and the earth. In him is life, and that life is the light of men. Do you know this Christ? 
if you go into my car and hit the button for CD, it's playing Messiah by Handel. I love Messiah by Handel. It's just incredible. And it's, it's just beautiful. And I, I'll tell you this story, I won't bore you again, but I was, uh, my freshman year in college when I was um, 19, my second semester, I, I came to know Christ. I, I heard the gospel, it made sense. I understood that sin separated me from holy God. I knew the sin of my own life. Jesus was the only bridge that crossed sin to life. And I, I came to faith in Christ. God saved me. And I started reading the Bible. And it just started making sense. And I got involved in campus Bible studies. And I, it, it really, God just worked. It just gave me eyes to see. And I went back to my church my first Christmas after coming to faith in Christ. We had a small church. And, you know, we had a choir. And I like to sing. I'm not that good, but I like to sing. I'm, I'm really, I am pretty good. <laughs> I'm not horrible. I'm not great, but I'm, I'm pretty good. And, and so the choir director saw me, and she said, we're singing the Hallelujah Chorus by Handel at, at the close of our service. Well, you know, our choir singing the Hallelujah Chorus was a stretch. You know, when our choir and orchestra plays, it's like, wow. When we sang, it was like, oh, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> but she said, can you sing with us? And I'd sung it before as a high schooler just because I like to sing. But I didn't get it. See, I didn't get it. And you know, in Handel's Messiah comes that part where it's the Hallelujah Chorus, and they sing time after time. And he shall reign forever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. And I, I got to that part. I couldn't sing. I was weeping so hard. Because I got it. He's the King of kings. He's God. I didn't know that. Wow. The perfect sacrifice for my sin on the cross. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And it came to John chapter 1, verse 12, and it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not, born not of, uh, of a father's will, nor of blood, but, or the will of man, but born of God. So the way you get into the kingdom is, is God gives you eyes to see, and it's not because of your parental heritage. It's not because of human will, self-effort. It's not the result of some type of blood passing on from godly parents. You're born of God. And my question is not, are you working hard to get right with God? Because that's what you're doing. You're not even close. My question is not, did your mom and dad believe, or did your grandparents believe, or do you come from an ethno-linguistic heritage that affirms the apostles' faith, whatever that means? My question is, do you believe do you believe? Have you, have you trusted in him? Have you trusted in this one who is God in the flesh, who fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system? It is a beautiful, beautiful, glorious story. His name is Jesus. So, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for the word of God and for the story of redemption that is wrapped up in the greatness of Jesus. Thank you. Uh, thank you that uh, we, we can read and understand, even though we can't begin to comprehend the depth of, of this fact. In the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. He was with God in the beginning. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And Lord, I, I pray that message would, would um, cheer us and carry us as we walk through valleys. Some people here walking through some valleys. As we walk through the plateaus and the mountaintops of life, that would cheer us and give us gladness. So blessed be your name this day. Uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I pray for those who are here, who are, are just getting the gospel. Help them to see they're not, they don't become believers in Jesus and trust you because of a father's will or because of blood descent or because of self-effort, but because God in his mercy opens their eyes and we just see Jesus, our, our, the sacrifice for sin, for our sin. And may that simple but profound story really compel us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.